Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm happy to welcome back to the show the inimitable, the one and only Maya May, comedian and host of LPTV's We're Speaking. Maya, welcome back. Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. So Maya and I are teaming up again to take questions from you all, our listeners and fellow members of the Lincoln Project community. We've taken these questions from social media platforms, emails you've sent us, questions we got at town halls, and remember, as always, anytime you ask a question, you could hear it on a show like this. So, Maya, let's get into it. Our first question today comes from Helen Lintala. She says, in the university town of Kent, Ohio, we attended a January 6th pro-democracy vigil. Simply put, there were zero young people in attendance out of a crowd of approximately 100. What can be done and what are the solutions to get young people motivated to be part of the political process? Well, Maya, you spent a lot of time on college campuses, so I want to get your opinion. But I think there's one sort of disappointing thing is that it was in Kent, Ohio, Kent State, I believe in 1970, where four students were shot and killed by the National Guard during a Vietnam era protest. So the idea that our memory is now less than 50 years old in a small town like that, where it must still have an indelible mark on the place is a little bit concerning. But again, as someone who spends a lot of time with young people, What's your take on Helen's question? I love this question from Helen because I think there is a misconception that youth aren't involved. They are involved. I think they're just not involved in the way that we are used to seeing in our generation. Vigils are a thing of Gen X, I think, in older generations. What the youth are doing right now is they're getting highly engaged by starting organizations, by registering and pre-registering other young people to vote and by putting the issues that they care about to the forefront. They're demanding that their voice be heard. So I think this idea that they're not a part of the political process, they just might not be a part of it the way we want them to be a part of it, but they most certainly are. I mean, maybe we don't need them to go to vigils, but don't we need them to actually show up and vote? I mean, that's the thing, talking to the pure politics of this, folks, like how do you get younger people to vote? And it's a little bit cynical, but cynicism sometimes is realism too, which is, you know, young people always have something else to do whatever generation they are. It's too hot. It's too cold. I forgot about it. I'm hungover. I'm drunk. It's too nice a day outside. You know, whatever it is, I've got class, I've got work, I can't figure it out. So it's really an issue too, I think, of one where, as you know too, and I say this again as part of the human condition, not as an insult to anybody, you know, between the ages of like 18 and 30, like Maya, you're the center of your own universe and ain't nothing getting in the way of that. Right. <laughs> and you live in the world that you're able to create. And it's only as you sort of get older and start to move through the stages, sort of like career, life, whatever it is, the parts of community, politics and everything else you start to see, you know, have an impact on you, whether or not that's paying taxes, you know, for the first time that you need an accountant. Right. And you're like, I need what? Who is this person and why am I paying them? 
So I think that that's the other part too. And especially now when, as you know, and I'm holding up my phone to Maya because I can see her, like you can live in this thing for the most part. And you see only the things you want to see, talk to only the people you want to talk to and interact with only the things you want to interact with. And most of them, I would guess, do not involve listening to, you know, nerds like me drone on about democracy. They listen to younger nerds, actually. Watching them get engaged, they're digital natives. And so they're consuming information in a way that older generations aren't. And so they're getting their news, they're getting informed, but they're doing it on TikTok. They're doing it on Instagram and to some extent, Twitter. And so they came out to vote in 2018, actually. I wish I could remember the numbers because we talked about it with John Della Volpe, but they came out in numbers that were similar to Gen X. And in coming together, they make an actually very strong voting block because they have similar values. And so they are getting far more engaged than they ever were before because they recognize that the adults aren't actually focusing on the issues at this point. Uh, they're seeing the conflict. They're seeing the unraveling of the democratic process. And they're deciding on their own to start getting engaged. I mean, look at when you look at uh, David Hogg, when you look at, you know, Greta Thunberg, like these are all very young people who are leading movements and inspiring other young people to do the same. Well, let's hope so. All right, Maya, let's move on. Here's one from a very frustrated Kevin Rice. I may skip voting in the midterms. If by some miracle the Democrats gain seats in both the House and 60 seats in the Senate, they will still squabble like children and not get anything done except naming post offices or spending more trillions on defense. Whew. So, Kevin, look, I think your frustration is understandable. What I would ask, though, is don't skip voting. I know that everybody says, oh, my votes don't matter. That is fundamentally not true. I think we've seen that. Almost all of these races now, you know, from the presidency in specific counties and specific states to congressional races, Senate races, state ledge races are coming down to hundreds or thousands of votes. So the idea that you might stay home because you're frustrated, I get it. A lot of people are frustrated. There's a lot to be frustrated about. But I would say this is sitting out is not the answer. Antipathy is not the answer. If the only thing you do, Kevin, in November is get out and vote for the pro-democracy candidate, you've done your part. Yeah. And I would love to add to that because if you don't vote, you're just giving away all of your power to the people who do vote. And they might not have your issues at top of mind. And so you end up living in a world that they created. And so if you truly, truly, truly want to see a difference, it's not just about getting out there and voting, but it's also then demanding accountability from the people that you do vote for and looking for those candidates who truly do represent your voice. And so I think what we're just seeing is a fracturing of the civic engagement process. And so people are like, hey, these representatives aren't representing me. And it's like, well, it's because we haven't actually been engaged as a populace and we need to be. Well, and Americans are historically bad at voting. In most midterms, voting is about 50%, right? So only one out of two people are participating anyway. And to your point, Maya, it's not an even swing, right? There will be a more energized side and a less energized side, especially in a midterm. I mean, there in Los Angeles, I did an LA County race, I think back, Maya, in 2014. And in the primary of that year, turnout in LA County, a county of 11 million people and 6 million voters was 12.5%. So something like 700,000 people made decisions on behalf of 11 million. You can't do that. And this is the other part too, Kevin. 
is if you don't vote this time, you may not get another chance. Like, I'm not overstating this. Like, as Timothy Snyder says in his book on tyranny, you never know when the last election of your lifetime will be. It could be 2022. It could be 2024. Do you really want to take that chance? I certainly know I don't. All right, let's move on. Here's a quick one. Patricia Liddy asks, will the January 6th committee be able to finish their work before the elections? I sure hope so. I don't know what the process is, but I sure hope they get on the stick here quickly and start putting people behind a witness table and doing this stuff in prime time. I have a question for you, Reed, actually, about this. This is more of a philosophical thing, but I wonder if, in addition to the process needing to be diligent, I also wonder what would it mean for our society? Perhaps people haven't grasped what it would mean because it really truly hasn't happened in modern times to say this large swath of people are seditionists. What would that do to our society? I mean, we know that there were 800 people or so that stormed the Capitol. We know that there are, just by the research that some folks have done that was featured in Barton Gelman's Atlantic article this month, that there could be as many as 20 million Americans that consider themselves, quote, committed insurrectionists, right? Folks who would take up violence in the cause of their own political beliefs. But I think, you know, the thing about January 6th is even what they're doing behind the scenes, you can see Maya as having a market effect on the Republican Party and Republican leadership. You saw Newt Gingrich last week say, you know, these January 6th people are going to have to be put in jail. There's a lot of violence. They're talking about any corporation that cooperates with them is going to be punished. And that's all based on fear. They're afraid of what's going to come out. They know that as this stuff starts to be made public, Maya, that it will make them look bad. They know that there are probably going to be at least a couple of sitting members of Congress who were in cahoots with some of these people. And they know that that's going to look bad for them. And so I think that's why you see they're ramping up the threats. They're also ramping up the threats because they've known Democrats for a long time. And Democrats tend to be afraid of the, but what if we do this, then they'll do that. Like the Republicans are going to do that. They're going to do it. And they're going to make a spectacle out of it, just like they did with Benghazi and sitting Hillary Clinton in front of that place for eight hours or whatever it is. I hate to say that you need a little spectacle, but you have to make these people famous and you have to hold them to account and you have to do it on national television. I agree. And I will be watching if it is televised. So much to say about this. I feel like we could have a whole episode on this. Well, you know what? Once they start, if they start, we'll come back and we'll do a play-by-play. -play. We'll get like the yellow squiggly pen that they have on football games. All right. Maya Ed Sanchez asks, I am as frustrated with Kirsten Cinema voting against the filibuster rule as much as the next guy, but is the Arizona Democratic Party censuring her really a good idea for the big picture, or is it just the next installment of Democratic infighting and ineffectiveness? Ed, here's what I would say. I think I agree with you on the big picture piece. Not because if Democrats want to do whatever it is they're going to do, they can, but because she's not up for re-election until 2024. If you want to have this fight, like, go for it. Just do it like two years from now when it matters and we don't have other things in front of us. You know, Maya, I said this on Twitter the other day with both Manchin and Cinema. Last year, I believe that they were just being obstructionist because they really liked being the center of attention. They liked being in the middle of the press scrum. They liked the attention from the media, from donors, from Mitch McConnell saying, you know, add a boy, add a girl. Now I'm thinking they might be playing a double game here. And maybe I'm giving them too much credit, which is I think they want to see how this year is going to work out election wise. And it wouldn't surprise me if they both jumped ship in 2023 if Republicans retook the Senate. I think they'd rather be in the majority than in the minority. 
both of them would probably lose their seats in 2024 because with the exception of people like Phil Graham in Texas a million years ago, very few people can pull off that sort of backflip and get reelected with their new party. We saw that Arlen Specter tried to do it years ago, and he got crushed in his Democratic primary in Pennsylvania after having been a senator there for decades. So yes, Ed, it's both. It is not a great idea for the big picture. And yes, it will be the next installment of Democratic infighting. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea either. I do, however, think that the Arizona Democratic Party probably wants to assert some semblance of control over what's happening in their state. I think there's this contingent of people who are like, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. And so I think this is their way of saying, hey, at least we're putting it on record that this isn't okay. so that if in the future our democracy does fall apart, they can say that they did, in fact, do something. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But when Ed, when you ask about Democratic infighting, I'm like, ah, is she even a Democrat? Like, I just don't know. <laughs> well, what's weird about cinema, Maya, is that she started out as like a green environmental activist, I think. So like her transit along, I'm going to use the phrase ideological spectrum, but I don't know that it matters. Her journey is fascinating, going from one where she was like, again, a very sort of committed progressive activist to getting elected as a moderate Democrat in a purple state to now being one where she's sort of sphinx-like, right? She doesn't talk to the media near as I can tell. She doesn't talk to anybody. So she's very difficult to discern what her motives are or what it is she wants. And this is one of the things, too, that I think has been really frustrating for folks like President Biden, who's been a fixture in Washington for decades, is, you know, when he was in the Senate, people always wanted something, right? There was always a deal to be made. And it doesn't look like with either of these two, there's a deal to be made. And when Manchin in December finally came out and said, you know, I'm against the Build Back Better deal, like he'd been saying that for six months, just no one was willing to listen to him. He wasn't coy about the fact that he didn't like it or he wasn't going to vote for it as is. And sometimes you just have to believe people when they say things. All right. Jeremy Rusin asks, I recently heard an interview with a pollster who reported that in a recent poll of independence, he found that voters were much more concerned about issues like rising inflation and significantly less concerned about investigating January 6th and defending democracy. I'm a Democrat myself, and while I am deeply concerned about protecting democracy, I can also see why others are apathetic to the issue, especially if their daily concerns are paying their bills and keeping their families safe. How can Democratic candidates in 2022 frame the importance of defending democracy, especially to independent voters, so that they do not come across as elitist by saying they know what's best for the voter more than the voter themselves? Well, Jeremy, this is actually a terrific question. And this is one of those where in politics, sometimes you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Inflation is an economic condition that has potential electoral outcomes. I mean, Maya, think about this. This is the first time in my life, I mean, aside from like when I was first born and we were too young to understand it, like no one's seen inflation in 40 years. To your point about young people, there are maybe 100 million Americans who've never seen inflation, like they don't know what it is. And so this idea that things are getting more expensive for some like mysterious reason, it's not something they've ever encountered before. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, you hear about it like the last time we had inflation, like the mortgage rate was like 17 percent. It was just a totally different world. But, you know, if you are a person who's managing a mortgage, you know, you and your spouse have a job or a couple of jobs each, school, kids and everything else. If your salary is steady at whatever thousands of dollars a year, but everything is now 7% more expensive, 
that has a real impact on take-home pay. So I've lived through incredible inflation because I lived in Argentina for eight years. In Argentina, inflation is so bad that on restaurant menus, many of them, they don't actually print the prices. They just pencil it in and then they just erase it the next day. And I remember at the time, my housekeeper and everybody in Argentina from the middle class has a housekeeper. So this isn't a bougie thing. She came to me and she said, Maya, I now charge 10 pesos an hour. And I was so confused because I was like, didn't realize that that's how this works. And she's like, well, rice is more and flour is more. And so this is now what I charge. And she just increased her prices. And that was the first time that I ever saw that mechanism work in that direction. And so I say this to say that we've seen companies have record profits. And I can't remember if it was Judd Legum who pointed this out, but there's sufficient profits that they don't necessarily have to raise their prices. They could actually keep the prices where they're at, but they're taking advantage of this time where people are now, it's being parroted over and over and over again in the media, inflation, inflation, inflation. And so they're running with this framing as if this inflation is something that has to happen, but it doesn't actually have to happen. This is where now we can actually ask for corporate responsibility and corporate accountability and say, is it necessary to continue to raise prices right now? Because they wouldn't actually even really need to truly cut into their profits in order to keep prices at bay. Right. So the other side of the question was on democracy. And Jeremy, here's the thing is that the Lincoln Project is going to go out and say, you must vote for the pro-democracy candidate because we have in this country now two parties and only one of them, the big D Democratic Party, is also the only small D Democratic Party. The Republican Party now is an authoritarian movement who has taken active steps since January 6th and beyond to roll back democratic norms and to roll back the ability for folks to not only participate, Maya, on the front end, but they're now mucking with the mechanisms of counting votes on the back end. Now, if you think inflation's bad now, go look at a place like Turkey or where you lived, Maya, in Argentina, where do you think the powers that be change their lives based on the hyperinflation that you experience? They do not. And they do not care. And the next time an election comes around, you may vote against them, but somehow your vote's going to disappear. You know, Erdogan in Turkey is mucking around with mass inflation in his country with mass discontent. He's an authoritarian. You think that the next time his election comes up, whenever it is the next year or two, he's somehow not going to win again? And so all of these things tie into each other. The reason why we are able to do things that can help ease inflation, whether or not that's raising interest rates or you know whatever the case might be, I'm no economist, is because we have a market economy based in democracy. There's no market economy in authoritarianism. And so democracy is the foundation of individual freedom, communal freedom, economic freedom. And you know, for an individual member of Congress, are they going to say that? I think they will. But you know, Jeremy, they're also going to make the issue-based points. But it's up to people like us to show this is the biggest issue. This is the existential threat on the board right now. Yeah. And just a reminder, we really have to consider our short-term versus our long-term objectives as a country. It is so very easy. I'm a mom. I have bills to pay. It is very easy to get caught in that day-to-day -day operational strategy. But we really have to think both as operational people, but also as strategy people. And I mean us, everybody, not just the Lincoln Project, but just people living our daily lives. And we have to consider what is happening now and how it's going to have an effect on the future. And so that's what I ask people to do. It's like, yes, 
inflation, it's an issue. We're not ignoring that. But this other pressing issue that is foundational, which is democracy, which is the thing that makes everything else work, that's the part that we have to fix. All right, moving on. Lara Fisher asks, there was a guest on the Lincoln Project podcast a few weeks ago, and she said that deplatforming works, especially when it comes to combating disinformation and the audience of those that spread it. Dan Bongino was just banned from YouTube. Will it work? Now, I must say this, Maya, in full disclosure, gang, I worked for Dan Bongino in 2014. He was a moderate Republican running for the United States Senate in Maryland. He had just gotten done working for Barack Obama on his Secret Service detail. He would say things like, I may disagree with the president, Mrs. Obama, on policy, but you know what? They are some of the finest people I've ever met, and I would never say a bad word about them. He has gone, Maya, far off the deep end. Am I surprised by it? Frankly, I'm not. But does this stuff work? It does, guys. It does. I mean, think about this, Maya. The reason why Bongino was banned from YouTube was because he was put on suspension for a week. That so upset him that he tried to sneak in through another channel he had created and broadcast live. Well, I didn't realize this till I read it yesterday. YouTube's terms of service say if you're on suspension and you try and sneak back on the platform, you're done. So if he had just not had a temper tantrum and sat quietly for a week, he'd probably be on YouTube right now. But I think this stuff does work. I mean, from YouTube, it's easy to spread that stuff through everything else. If you've got to go to Rumble, right, which I guess has like 30 million users now, that's fine, but it's not YouTube, right? So does this stuff matter? It does. And also go to checkmyads.org. That was Claire Aston, who was my guest, who is terrific. She and her partners are doing incredible work on getting folks like Bongino taken off platforms, getting advertisers to drop their shows, because ultimately, Maya, this is going to be an economic decision. If they're not able to make money, they may still go crazy, but you know the household products that you know and love are not going to give them money because they don't want to be associated with that stuff. Exactly. And I'm, as a mom, so glad that he's off of YouTube because part of the radicalization process is when YouTube serves up a video that is in somebody's suggestions because of something else they watched. You know, my daughter used to watch Shane Dawson. And because of that, she got shown another video that was pushing her towards QAnon conspiracy theories. And so I think when we're thinking about the technical aspect of it and the algorithms, it's so important that information like this not be on these platforms that have widespread reach, that if people are searching for it on Rumble, it's because they've already been radicalized in a way. It can't just happen across the impressionable mind of a young person. And I also wanted to mention something that Santiago Mayer, who is the founder of Voters Tomorrow, which he founded when he was 17 years old, it's a bipartisan youth organization because he realized that people weren't as engaged as they needed to be. He pointed out that it's not just that there's all this misinformation, but there's really just not enough good information on these platforms. And so in addition to pulling information off of the platforms, we also have to be concentrated on creating content for TikTok, for Instagram, for YouTube. Because if you look at the top videos on Facebook and Instagram, it's all misinformation. And so it's up to us to create engaging content that can counter that. So that's the other piece of the puzzle. Well, and more to come on that, gang. So stay tuned on the combating misinformation front. All right, let's move on. Wade Haubert asks, with gerrymandering making things such a mess, is there any way that we could try and encourage 
relocation of pro-democracy folks to relocate to MAGA country areas, almost like sleeper agent voters, to rebalance things. It seems this would be possible with the prevalence of remote work everywhere. Well, Wade, I appreciate your imagination. What I would say is a couple of things. One, getting people to move for any reason can be difficult, but also your remote work thing means that they don't have to move. Secondly, and this is something Joe Trippi, a senior advisor of ours, pointed out, gerrymandering is a wash this year. We thought it was going to be 10, 12, 14 seats that Republicans were going to be up going into the 2022 elections. It looks like, Maya, now it could be four or six seats to the Biden side, the districts that voted for Joe Biden going into this November. So I would say that don't call any of your friends. Don't tell them they have to move to West Texas, Wade. As far as the numbers are concerned, it looks like it's going to be a wash as far as districts that Trump won versus districts that Biden won. Now it's going to be, let's go win those races we need to win to hold the line, and let's go pick up a few we didn't think we could. I love this question, Wade, because I've often thought this myself as somebody who went to college in rural Iowa. I'm always like, hey, let's think outside the box, and sure, we can work from anywhere. And actually, my suggestion is, why not start it? This is the thing. I feel like it's going to take everybody taking their ideas to the table. And so sometimes we come up with these ideas and we just float them. What I love about Gen Z is they'll come up with an idea like this and in two days have a website that shows housing prices in different places, how much they'd save if they relocated from San Francisco to the middle of Missouri. And all of a sudden they'll put a video on TikTok and now you've got 10,000 people moving to this town in Missouri. And I'm sure the folks in Missouri would be very happy with that. But Wade, what I would say is keep that imagination rolling. I dig it. All right. Last question of the day here, Maya. Jeannie Bird says, I was appalled by Mitch McConnell's comments that separated Americans and African-Americans. I really hope that this will be held up as a prime example of Republican intentions, but I'm afraid it will just go the way of the news cycle. How do you all think it will play out? Well, look, I mean, Maya, I'm not surprised by this. No one else should be either. Look, McConnell doesn't care about anybody but himself. Let's be clear. But what he said, I think, was accurate, right, which is he sees African-American voters as a liability to his candidates getting elected or reelected. Why? Because Democrats win somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of black voters every cycle. Right. I was going to say, because we are <laughs> we are a liability. <laughs> right. But, you know, as Stuart likes to say, that's the issue with Republicans in the African-American community is not one of how you talk to the African-American community. It's the African-American community. Here's what Republicans say and don't want anything to do with it. For me, the bigger issue is making sure communities of color, wherever they are, are energized to vote for the Democratic candidate. Because, you know, I think Maya this year, like so many other communities, apathy will be the biggest hindrance to success in November, not belief. But comments like this, I'm kind of glad that he said it. And I think it will, in a way, even though if it doesn't stay in the news cycle, I think it's going to stay in the psyche because comments like these are so appalling, especially to young voters, that I think it's going to galvanize them and get that vote out. I think the organizations that can leverage those kind of comments in content that they're creating for Gen Z, that they're creating for the younger voting bloc, that's where that's going to come in. Young people across the board, they're so much more inclusive than we even understand. And so I think it was unfortunate that he said it, but it was also fortunate that he said it. The thing, too, is that no one is surprised when they look at Mitch McConnell and they hear him say that. I mean, the only thing he's missing is like, you know, the Colonel Sanders suit and the, you know, the Kentucky Colonel hat. Politics to him is math, whether or not it's votes or money. That's it. 
Yeah, I just think he's doing really bad math right now because he's not thinking about the millions of people who are offended by this. And so I think their math might be 1970s math and 1980s math and 1990s math, but they need to get with 2022 math, which is a different kind of math, different variables at play. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, listen, everybody, I want to say thank you so much, as always, for your terrific questions and your interest. Maya, I want to thank you for joining me today. Maya, before we let you go, where can everybody find you on social media? I am at Maya on stage on all platforms, including Peloton. More and more people are joining me on there. And so that's another way that we're going to get through 2022 is by minding our health. So I invite everybody to jump on the bike with me. And before we started recording, gang, Maya was giving me quite the lecture on my physical health. So I would endeavor to keep up with her, but I think that I would bonk in a hurry. As always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Again, Maya, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks again to everybody for your questions, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.